Well, hi, Timberline family. Thanks so much for joining me as we continue this series, What Just Happened. We're looking at episodes in the Bible, Old and New Testaments, where surprising, jaw-dropping things happened. And this week we turn to the Old Testament to a story in 2 Samuel chapter 6. The title for this message is that resentment happened. The story features the very famous character of David, King David, and then also uh, his wife, or at least one of his wives, um, Michal. Now, when you read her name in print, it looks like Michal or Michael, but it's Michal. Uh, that's the way we should pronounce it. The story also features the Ark of the Covenant. I saw that really famous movie about the Ark of the Covenant featuring Indiana somebody, and uh, that's where most people associate the Ark of the Covenant. But the truth is the Ark features in the Old Testament. God was not in the box that was the Ark of the Covenant. You can never box God in. But the Ark was not only a, a symbol, but brought a sense of the power of God among his people. Disaster had hit the nation of Israel because their old enemies, the Philistines, had captured the ark, but now they'd got it back. There had been one disastrous attempt to bring the ark home to Jerusalem. That had failed miserably. They'd got it back so far, and now David's mission was to go and finally bring the ark home for what was intended to be a day of celebration for everybody. Sadly, as we're about to read, it didn't happen that way because resentment eclipsed the day of celebration. Let's have a look at 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 12. Then King David was told, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf, and David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. When he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. Then he gave to every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people returned to their homes. When David returned home to bless his own family, Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. She said in disgust, How distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar fellow might do, like any vulgar person might do. David retorted to Michal, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father, and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord, so I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. 
But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. So Michal, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. Just recently, Kay and I were looking at our rather ancient wedding photographs. I've often said that we got married back in the 70s, an era of tremendous music and horrendous fashion choices. And there's me with hair with a tie that I think the knot of it was slightly bigger than my head with flared pants, uh, trousers, and, um, and, and those uh, shoes, platform heels, which meant that I was a couple of inches taller than I currently am. The photographs are truly horrific. Kay looks beautiful, I look awful, and often when I show those photographs to our friends, they turn to Kay and they say, why? Why did you marry him? For that reason, uh, I live with a constant sense of gratitude towards my wife. So when she suggested that we go for some ballroom dancing lessons together, I was very eager to comply. Let me tell you, it was a total disaster. There is some physiological default in my system, which means that my feet are not actually attached to my brain. And so I would instruct my left foot to go in that direction. And the result was an ungainly spasm, which caused the instructor to almost say some bad words. So frustrated was she by my performance. I am not a dancer and my snow skiing isn't that much better. It's more of a downhill spasm. This is a story about a dancer, a celebration time. David, King David is so completely delighted to bring the Ark of the Covenant home. And when you read this story, you see that it's a tremendously exciting day for the people of God. There's shouting, there's the, the sound of trumpets. There is, this is no quiet celebration, but Everyone's yelling and jumping and they are thrilled to see the Ark of the Covenant come home. And then there's this really weird thing because every six steps as they walk into the city of Jerusalem, every six steps they stop right there and they offer a burnt sacrifice. I mean, can you imagine all those Hebrew children saying, are we there yet? Every six steps they are stopping. And then we read that David is dancing, dancing, whatever. He is not just jumping up and down in a mild kind of slightly excited Christian hop. The Hebrew word here means to separate the limbs. The guy is going totally ballistic. But there is one person who misses the joy of the day. Her name is Michal, she is married to David, she is resentful, and she is critical. And it's easy when we read about her, when we imagine her scowling face, it's easy just to think that she's just negative and critical and that's just the way it is. Straighten up, lady. Actually, as we're going to see, she is something of a victim. Now, as we think about resentment and bitterness, I, I think everybody will agree with me that 
This is a time, not just in American history, but in world history, where there's so much shouting, but not shouts of joy, shouts of spite and aggression, whether it's here in America or in Europe with Brexit still rumbling on. People don't dialogue anymore. They just yell at each other. And often the statements that are made are laced with resentment and bitterness. And God is calling us as his people to live differently. I also need you to know that as I preach this this weekend, that I find myself personally challenged. Over the last few days in preparing for this message, I suddenly found myself becoming resent resentful about some of the hurts that I've experienced in Christian leadership and in ministry. About six or seven years ago, I went through a bit of a tough time because a fellow Christian leader unfairly criticized me and a number of my Christian leader colleagues in the, uh, in the Christian press, uh, in a magazine back in the UK. A six-page article appeared. I was, I was really mad. I didn't really want to send him a, a warm, friendly note. I was tempted to send him a horse's head by FedEx. Now, of course, I, I, I didn't do that. And uh, those unfair statements were repented of. An apology was eventually made. But, you know, this week, suddenly, all of that came back to me. And I got mad. I actually thought about writing to him again to let him know how much hurt he had caused me. It's okay. I didn't, mainly because of the patient influence of my dear wife. And I suddenly thought, where's all this resentment coming from? And other episodes, because if you've been in ministry for 40-something years, there are going to be a few bruises along the way. I thought, where's this coming from? And then, suddenly, my brain kicked in. Often it takes a little while. And I realized that I'm preaching this weekend on resentment, and I found myself being personally tested in that area. And maybe that's true for you as well. Some people live bitter. They live just beneath the surface of their skin. They navigate their way through life, just waiting for an opportunity to be upset to be angry and resentful. So what can we learn from this story this weekend? Well, the first thing is this. Let's know that hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. We read there, now Saul's daughter, Michal, was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased, I will give her to him, he thought, so that he may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. You read about that back in 1 Samuel 18. This woman had been shamelessly used by the two most important men in her life, her father and her husband. First of all, uh, her dad, Saul, King Saul, he was totally unpredictable, crazy behavior, when he got mad with David, he would throw a javelin. Imagine that. This dad of yours is, is weaponized against your fiance. And then she's viewed as a second choice. 
Saul had promised David the hand of Merab, his eldest daughter. So Mihal was second choice. That must have seared into her soul. Then she's really only been being used as part of a plot by her father, Saul. Because Saul set David up. He said, bring me 100 uh, Philistine foreskins, which is a fairly unusual gift, uh, if you want the hand of my daughter. Now, why did Saul do that? He did that because he wanted David dead. So Mihal is being used as bait to lure David into a trap. Well, finally, uh, they get married, but then she's abandoned by David, who, who spent between 10 to 14 years away from her and then married two other women in the interim period. And then she's given away by her dad to somebody else, to a man called Paltiel. Then David shows up and he says, I want my wife back. So now she's married to a man who truly loves her, Paltiel. He follows her weeping all the way back to the palace. And now she is forced to return to this man, David, who has left her isolated for so long. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? This woman is a victim. And I want to slow down right now and just speak tenderly for a moment to those who really have been wounded and bruised by others in your life. And in sharing this message, I'm not suggesting that it's, it's somehow easy to deal with resentment. But the truth is, as we deal with resentment, we are the first people, the, you're the first person to actually benefit from making good decisions about that. This woman was hurt, and so she responds, she reacts, with hurt. Let's also remember, before we move on, that everyone's got a story. Perhaps that realization, a reminder of that, would help us to be a, a, just a little bit more gracious with each other. Secondly, don't get over-enthusiastic about correction. Don't get over-enthusiastic about correcting others. 2 Samuel 6, 16 says she was filled with contempt for him. And then when David returned home to bless his household, verse 20, Mihal, daughter of Saul, she came out to meet him. She, she couldn't wait till he got home. She came out to intercept him with her criticism. And she's criticizing him for worshiping God. She's judging him. Now, Let's just take a moment to think about this word judgment because we're living in a day where tolerance is the new idol, where we're not supposed to offer a kind, clear critique of anything. And I often hear Christians and non-Christians misquoting uh, that command in the Bible, judge not that you be not judged. The Bible doesn't tell us that we should never make judgments about things. In fact, um, Paul writes to the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth and brings judgment to their behavior. Jesus brought judgment to the Pharisees with his withering words in his sermon, as did John the Baptist, brought judgment 
to God's people. It isn't that we're never supposed to make judgments, but we're not supposed to make false, incorrect judgments. And Mihal, she's angry, she's despising him. The word in the Hebrew means to lightly esteem, to scorn, to make vile. And she's focusing on, in on what irritates her. How easy it is for us to do that. Kent Hughes has said, has said, we find it so easy to turn a microscope on another person's sin, but we look at ours through the wrong end of a telescope. Man, those are challenging words. Mark Twain says, nothing so needs reforming as other people's habits. And some of us, we, we almost enjoy being offended. We're offended about what's in the past. We're offended about what's going on. Some of us are even offended about stuff that's not even happened yet, but we think that it might just happen, and yeah, then I'm going to be offended. Let me ask this question. Is being offended, being critical, being judgmental, correcting others, is that a hobby of yours, of mine? We need to get a better hobby if that is the case. Theodore Roosevelt said this, it's not the critic who counts, not the one who points out how the strong person stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the person who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, but comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends themselves in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if they fail, at least they fail while daring greatly, so that their place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat." If criticizing others fills us with a, an unseemly joy, we need to search our own hearts and ask why. Thirdly, when you see a mistake, when we see a mistake, let's consider the motive. Consider the motive. Mihal, daughter of Saul, verse 20, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. But first of all, he wasn't half naked. He was wearing a, a priestly garment. Now, when you study this story carefully, you have to admit that in his leaping around and dancing, in his exuberance, there might have been an immodest moment, if I can put it like that. But in that moment, Mihal seizes upon the opportunity to point the finger, to criticize, to be completely oblivious to his heart for worship and just focus in perhaps on an unfortunate moment. She didn't see the beauty of his worship. She just saw what potentially might have been an error of judgment. Here's a statement I'd like all of us to think about. Offense, prejudice of any kind, always looks for confirmation of its suspicions. 
but it then edits out contradictions. So when someone that we're upset with, maybe that we're resentful towards, when they do something that confirms our diagnosis of them, we say, oh, there you go again. You always. But then when they behave beautifully in a way that does not confirm our suspicions about them, we don't notice. Or we write it off as a, a one-off. Oh, well, at least they did that right, but let me tell you the real truth about them. When we see a mistake, let's look past that and look towards the motives of that person. Were they being deliberately malicious and unkind? Did they just trip up? And again, let's return to that challenge. Are we those people who love to say, gotcha, Again, if we do, perhaps there are deeper issues in us that need to be resolved. The fourth thing is this. Realize that you're not always right. Realize that you're not always right. David said to me how it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. Now, I've got to just be honest with you and say, when I read his response, I'm not totally impressed. I mean, it was not terribly subtle. Like, yeah, I know, honey, but, you know, God rejected your dad and he chose me, so, so what? I'm going to go even further in this. I'll celebrate with all my might. It might have been insensitive. He's right in his determination to worship, but there's no response from her. There's no reasoning with her resentment. She stays where she is. You know, being in pastoral ministry as long as I've been, I've discovered that there are some people, they're just never wrong. It's intolerable to have that burden of always being in the right. You can't disagree with them. You can't dialogue or discuss anything. They have decided. And some people, they don't amble through life. They march through life with this resolute self-sense, if you will, that they are normally, 99.9% .9 of the time, that they are right. Let me ask this question. When was the last time that you conceded that you were wrong about something important. When was the last time we changed our minds? When was the last time we said, you know, I made that appraisal of you, but I really got it wrong and I'm sorry. When was the last time we moved from a place of entrenchment? <laughs> Here's the news. And for some of us, this might cause the universe to explode. We're not always right. We're not always right. Sometimes I hear people saying, well, pastor, we know the Bible is right, so just preach the Bible. Yeah, that works really well if what I preach, what we preach is the interpretation of the Bible that is your interpretation. And what we do is we surround ourselves, if we're not careful, with people who confirm our rightness. And then our backs are against the wall against everybody else. 
who surely is wrong. You know, one of the most healthy things we can do is tune into voices, voices that are in disagreement with what we think to allow our own ideas to be interrogated because truth will stand interrogation. At a personal level, do we always live as if we're right? Well, the last thing is this, and that is that all relationships need nurture. All relationships need nurture. There was a time, you read about it in 1 Samuel 18, 20, where Michal was in love with David. She took some risks for him. She helped him escape from her father Saul when he was on a murderous trail to get rid of David. She risked her life. Even the most beautiful relationship can be soured and ultimately destroyed by lingering resentment that is not dealt with. Well, how does it all end up? Well, we read here in 2 Samuel 6, 23, Mihal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, please, every single person tuning in here, please listen carefully to me. Mihal was barren, we are told, following this episode. The Bible is not saying that an inability to have children is a result of resentment. Sometimes verses can be plucked out of the Bible and used as weapons to hurt people who are already struggling. That is not what the Bible is saying. And some commentators believe that Michal didn't have any more children, and had no children to the day of her death, because actually there was such a rift in her relationship with David that they no longer slept together. It may be as simple as that. I want to repeat this again because this is so important. This is not a suggestion that an inability to have children is a result of bitterness. But I do want to make this statement, and that is that resentment will always sour our lives and relationships if we don't deal with it. So as we come in a moment to prayer together, a few takeaways for this week. First of all, is there someone that I need to forgive or begin the process of forgiveness? And very often forgiveness is a journey, not just the decision. It's a determination to ask God to help us towards having a right attitude towards that person. Is there someone that I need to have a conversation with? And let's know this, not every issue has to be sorted out. We Christians can be quite good at jumping into difficult, bruising conversations when actually we could have just prayed about it and, and moved on without any conversation with that other person. But there may be conversations that need to be had. And then are there pieces of conflict or resentment that we need to own, a part that we have played in the situation? And then finally, is there a way that I can be praying for somebody? You know, one of the great ways to begin dealing with resentment is to pray for the person that you resent. And it might feel rather unnatural, weird, even a bit false. But as we pray for those that we resent, there can be great help for us in that journey. As we pray, 
Let me also say that for some of us, we have been so deeply hurt that it might be appropriate to not only ask for prayer, um, but also to seek some professional help in sharing this message. Nobody is trying, I'm certainly not trying to skim over the hurt that there may be. But on a day of celebration, Michal missed out. May it be when the joy of the Lord is upon his people as it was that day, that we are out there with David, joyfully dancing, celebrating, rather than up in the balcony with Michal, scowling, angry, resentful. As we pray, picture them both, David, Michal, which one do we want to be? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us. And with all of our sins, our faults, our failures, you extend your grace and mercy to us. We pray for those who have been wounded and hurt, that you will grant healing to their wounds. And perhaps the beginning of a journey where resentment falls from them and your spectacular grace fills their hearts. But we know that this is not easy and we ask you for your help, your strength. Help us this week to work the implications of this message through. Before we conclude, I need to also give you an invitation wherever you are today to come to know the Lord Jesus for yourself because ultimately, you know, this is not just about us getting rid of an attitude, but it's about us allowing him to work in our lives. And maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've never made that step to invite him to come into your life. I'm going to pray the briefest of prayers that you can join me in if you'd like to make that step. It goes like this. So follow along with me. Jesus, I need you. I turn to you. I turn away from sin towards you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. I invite you to take charge of my life right now in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer, congratulations, and listen out for more information at the end of our service. God bless you.